Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is sponsored by Naama Margolis in honour of her parents, Ilana and David Heller, and in honour of her tireless Gemara teacher, Anat Novaletsky, who first introduced her to Masechet Ketubot. Hello, my name is Renana Dine, and I'm a graduate student at the University of Cambridge. Here at Cambridge, I study the interaction of religion, medicine, and visual art. And hopefully, I will get to impart some of my passion for these topics to you in this podcast as I introduce the Tractate of Kitubot, which is all about marriage contracts. My relationship with the Mishnah was formed within the comfort of my home and with the guidance of my father. When I was 10 or 11, I started to prepare to become a bat mitzvah, and as part of that preparation, I wanted to learn a section of Jewish text with my dad. We decided to try and learn all of Seder Moed, the section of the Mishnah dealing primarily with the laws of the holidays, with the help of the popular commentator Pinchas Kehati. It was a lot of text to learn, but I also remember it being a lot of fun. My father and I enjoyed the beautiful Hebrew of Kahati's commentary, how he personified the Mishnah as coming to teach us, like a friendly tutor, and learning things like how laws regarding Shabbat cooking are derived from the practice of a bandit. Now, ten or so years later, I have taken on the practice of studying a few Mishnayot daily, called Mishnayomi, and have enjoyed returning to the text. Learning it every day has enabled me to appreciate the Mishnah's structure and major overall themes, and since each Mishnah is usually fairly short, it's easy to learn a few over breakfast or while commuting. I will say at the outset of this podcast that I found Kitubot, the Masachet or Tractate that I'm discussing today, quite challenging. Kitubot is the second tractate in Seder Nashim, that deals with all things regarding women, like weddings, marriage, and divorce. The first tractate in Seder Nashim is Yevamot, which is all about who should marry who in certain family situations. If Yevamot was about who to marry, Kitubot is about the practical realities of marriage, and the rabbis are blunt about the challenges, responsibilities, and practicalities of married life and the reality of the painful and oftentimes necessary disillusion of a marriage. Kitubot refers to the marriage contract where the groom takes financial responsibility for his wife in the case of divorce or his death. Today, at traditional weddings, the Kitubah is still signed and read under the chuppah. In our Masachet, the Kitubah can refer to the full document, but also more specifically to the monetary compensation outlined in the contract. The Masachet also discusses dowries and inheritance law, along with laws about witnesses and other topics. The Ketubah is a particularly fascinating document since it records the lives of ordinary individuals and we have versions of it that actually predate the canonization of the rabbinic Ketubah. The design of the Ketubah has changed over time, Historically, some ketubot have been lavishly decorated, and some have been very plain. In the 17th century, for example, highly decorated ketubot became popular in places like Italy and the Islamic countries, and scenes of Jerusalem were particularly common 
because of the idea that we should remember Jerusalem and its destruction even at the time of our greatest joy. Later, as Jews became involved with their home countries, you would find national or monarchical symbols like double-headed eagles, bald eagles, and the moon and crescent on Ketubot. You can see an example of one of these Ketubot in the links on the show notes. Although many Ketubot in the past and today are meant to be beautiful art objects, the rabbis took the actual contract within the Ketubah very seriously. When studying Ketubot, it's important to contextualize the rabbis' discussion of marriage and women within their own period. The rabbis understood marriage as a commitment wherein both parties, husband and wife, have duties to one another, and these can be financial, sexual, and religious. The rabbis take an extremely practical and bald look at marriage. When discussing Ketubot, they are trying to create a system to protect husbands and wives by setting out guidelines and laws about each one's obligations to the other. In particular, they are asking about what those look like in the painful occasion of a marriage coming to an end. Although it's unromantic, it's extremely important for the rabbis to discuss these details, to be realistic about the challenge of marriage. In the rabbis' discussions, however, they often talk about topics that today we think about differently, particularly the status of married women. The Masachet deals with rape, virginity, trusting a woman's word about her own sexual history, and the wife's obligations to take care of household duties, all things that might make a feminist bristle. And that's okay. We should not ignore the frustrating way these texts sometimes talk about women or feel like we must apologize for the text. But it is helpful to keep in mind that the rabbi's world looked very different when it came to the status of women and of marriage and appreciate the rabbi's willingness to deal frankly with the real-life challenges of marriage. The Masachet opens with a discussion of the exact financial stipulations of the Ketubah, how much money the woman will receive if the marriage ends. The second Mishnah of the tractate opens, Bitulah Ketubata Ma'atayim Va'amana Maneh A virgin, her Ketubah, is worth 200 zuzim, a widow, 100 zuzim. Zuzim were a currency of money used in the time of the rabbis. So this seems pretty simple. Upon a divorce or the death of the husband, the wife will be paid 200 Zuzim if it was her first marriage, 100 if it's her second. But this is not the end of the Mishnah's questions. What if she was a widow, but still a virgin? What if she is a convert? The Mishnah also needs to develop a way of ascertaining whether a woman is a virgin or not. Today, many of us are uncomfortable with the rabbi's stress on a woman's virginity and also understand that virginity is a flexible thing. Some women physiologically can remain a virgin after their first sexual encounter, while others may not physically be virgins despite never having had intercourse. In the time of the rabbis, however, a woman's virginity was paramount, possibly because it was a way of ascertaining a woman's personal qualities, and ensuring that any children were indeed the husband's. These monetary amounts and variations in status are still included in the Ketubah today. A traditional Ketubah, translated in English, reads in part, Reuven, son of Shimon, said to this virgin, Rachel, daughter of Levi, Be my wife according to the practice of Moses in Israel, and I will cherish, honor, support, and maintain you in accordance with the custom of Jewish husbands 
who cherish, honor, support, and maintain their wives faithfully. And I here present you with the marriage gift of virgins, 200 silver zuzim, which belongs to you, according to the laws of Moses and Israel. And I will also give you your food, clothing, and necessities, and live with you as a husband and wife, according to universal custom. For the rabbis, the ketubah was so important that even if the contract was never written down, the stipulations included within it still were in place. But that doesn't mean that the contract was fixed and unchangeable. The first Mishnah in the fifth chapter states, Although the sages said, a virgin collects 200 dinar and a widow a mane, these are different amounts of money, if the husband wants to add even a hundred mana, he can add it. This is important because this flexibility within the ketubah tells us that the rabbis understood that the ordinary value of the ketubah was not always enough to protect certain women, and that they left the ketubah a somewhat flexible document so it could be best applied in different situations. This idea of flexibility has helped inspire the current method preventing what are known as agunot through adding another contract, the halachic prenup. An aguna is a man or woman who is separated from their spouse, but is not yet Jewishly divorced or widowed. One most often hears of women who are agunot because according to Jewish law, only the husband can grant the official bill of divorce, a get. And in some cases, a husband holds on to the get in order to extract money, custody arrangements, or revenge on his estranged wife. Men can also be agunot, if a wife refuses to accept her get. Without a get, a woman cannot get remarried according to Jewish law. Today, many couples are encouraged to sign a halachic prenup, which raises the amount the husband will have to pay his wife during the time he does not give her a get, so that it becomes practically impossible for him to not grant her the divorce in a timely manner. The halachic prenup is extremely important for ensuring that women don't end up in the horrific situation where they become agunot and cannot get remarried. Any Jewish couple planning on getting married should be made aware of the halachic prenup and be encouraged to sign it. To learn more about the halachic prenup and agunot, I encourage you to look at the website of the Organization for the Resolution of Agunot, ORA, at www.getora.org and for people listening in England, the United Synagogue's prenuptial agreement page. You can also find the links in the show notes. Masecha Kitubot is 13 chapters long, and many of them focus on the financial technicalities of the Kitubah. Where does the money go? Who does it belong to in certain situations? What happens in complicated cases of inheritance? Some of the most interesting Mishnayot have to do with the husband and wife's obligations to one another, and what automatically triggers a divorce. For example, chapter 7 of the tractate deals with the question of what happens if the husband makes a vow to limit some of his wife's activities. Is he allowed to place limitations on his wife in this way? The rabbis took vows extremely seriously, a topic which actually will be the focus of the next tractate. The rabbis worry that a husband's vow not to benefit from his wife or to limit her activities will mean that he is not keeping up his responsibilities in the marriage. And so in some cases, they say that a divorce automatically goes into effect. The first part of the fifth Mishnah in chapter 7 reads, 
olivet hamishta, yotzi biyoten ketuba, mipnei shenoel bifaneha, v'im hayato ein mishum davar acher, rashai. One who vows to prohibit his wife from entering a house of mourning or a house of feasting, like a wedding, must divorce her and pay her ketubah, because he is locking the doors of comfort and rejoicing in her face. But if he claims that there is a good reason for keeping the vow, he is permitted to remain married to her. In the situation the Mishnah describes, the husband is using his words, his vow, to stop his wife from socializing, cutting her off from the community. The Mishnah continues, Amarla, Aminat Shatomri Laploni Masha Amart Li, O Masha Amarti Lach, O Shatahem Male Umara Lashpa, Yotzi, Vayatain Ketuba. If he says to her, I will annul your vow only on condition that you tell so and so what you said to me, or that which I said to you, or that she must fill a given number of buckets of water and pour them on a garbage dump, he must divorce her and pay her Ketuba. In this situation, the husband is manipulating his wife to reveal private information or forcing his wife to perform actions that others will interpret as crazy or embarrassing. According to the Mishnah, these vows are not permitted, and if the husband makes them, he automatically triggers a divorce and must pay his wife the value of her ketubah. These are obviously not nice situations, but I was struck by how seriously the rabbis take the words of the husband and their effect on his wife. The situations described are abusive, and the rabbis will not tolerate this kind of treatment. If the husband treats his wife this way, divorce is automatic. Abuse of all sorts is still extremely prevalent in many marriages today, and the rabbis' serious and dramatic approach to situations of abuse like the ones above is important. The rabbis were open to discussing such situations and addressing them head-on 1,500 years ago. We, too, should not be afraid to educate ourselves and our children about the prevalence and warning signs of abuse and resources for couples in such situations. Before finishing, though, I want to turn to a more positive Mishnah, which describes the give and take of a marriage and how each marriage is dependent on the people within it. In the fifth chapter, the rabbis discuss a husband who provides for his wife through a third party. Perhaps the husband travels a lot or needs to live in another city and so asks a servant or friend to provide for his wife on a day-to-day basis. The husband, however, is not allowed to neglect his wife even in such a situation. The beginning of the ninth Mishnah of the chapter reads, He must give her an allowance of a ma'ah of silver for her weekly needs, and she eats with him every Shabbat Eve. And if he does not give her a ma'ah of silver for her weekly needs, her handiwork earnings belong to her. The text continues detailing earnings of this handiwork. What amount of work must you do for him? Five sela of spun wool for warp in Judea which are equal to 10 sela in the Galilee, or 10 sela weight for wolf in Judea, which are equal to 20 sela in the Galilee. If she was nursing, we reduced the required quantity of her handiwork 
and we increase the amount of food with which she is provided. Finally, the Mishnah concludes with this statement. About whom are the above conditions speaking? About the poor in Israel. However, with regard to a person of honor and social status, everything is according to his honor. According to this Mishnah, a husband must provide a certain amount of money for the wife's weekly needs. Or, alternatively, she may use her own earnings for her daily expenses without her husband's oversight. One of the most beautiful details of this Mishnah, I think, is the stipulation that the husband must spend Friday night with his wife, even if usually he hires someone to provide for her. Although a third party may be okay during the week, on Shabbat the husband must be present for his wife, and they must be together. Shabbat here is a time of togetherness and family, whatever the logistical situation of the couple is during the rest of the week. After this mention of Shabbat, the Mishnah discusses the value of spun wool in different parts of ancient Israel, showing that the rabbis understood the economic variations within different regions. But the Mishnah's understanding of economic variability is echoed by its understanding of the variability of different people's needs. The Mishnah closes by saying that the stipulations it has laid out for how a husband cares for his wife cannot be fixed because they are dependent on the individual's status and needs. Everything is according to his honor. Just as the price of wool is dependent on location, the obligations of a husband to his wife, and one would imagine the wife to her husband, are dependent on the people involved in what they need. The rabbis cannot totally set in stone the balance of obligations, responsibilities, and commitments a couple have to one another. The ketubah is a powerful document, but it will not suffice to cover the complexity that is the balance of a marriage. The individuals, their status, personalities, and needs are the real substance of a marriage, and so each marriage is its own trick of balancing obligations, whether financial or romantic. In Ketubot, the rabbis do their best to create the conditions for setting up a good marriage as they understood it, and protecting women in the case that the marriage does not work out. No matter how many laws they put in place, how many situations they imagine, the rabbis understand that they cannot control for all the complexities of any given marriage, that each is dependent on the personalities involved. Masecha Kitubot presents a very realistic and structured picture of marriage, one with many legal and financial requirements, and one made up of responsibilities and obligations. But it is also a vision of marriage that understands the complexity and challenge of married life and tries its best to include room for the necessary negotiation that is part of the best partnerships. Thanks for listening. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjofa.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.